Hello, and welcome to Talk Julia. My name is David Amos. And my name is Randy Davila. Randy, it's been a little while since we've uh, put out an episode, so I'm excited to actually sit down and, and record this and get back into it. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's been too long. Yeah, I think uh, we'll, we'll get back on a regular cadence here. Uh, but I'm excited uh, for this particular episode because we're joined by a very special guest, uh, Valentin. Welcome to Talk Julia. Thank you. Yeah, my name is Valentin Shiravi. Um, I... Um, moonlight as a JuliaCon organizer, uh, <laughs> and my day-to-day -day job is um, being a PhD student at MIT, where I do research on and with Julia. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, right at the birthplace of Julia, right? <laughs> yes. So, Valentin, tell us a little bit about how you got into computers and into programming. What sparked that interest for you? Uh, so, I grew up in Germany, um, and I think... I was always, um, my, my family had a family computer and um, I have two older sisters and they got, when they turned, I think, 16 or something like that, they got a new personal computer for themselves, like, and I got stuck with a family computer over the years. And so I had this old, very crappy um, machine that didn't run anything particularly well. Um, and so at some point I decided I, I, I want to put Linux on it and I spent uh, a good couple of years uh, distro hopping, um, going as deep as Gentoo and Slackware and uh, trying to rebuild the entire universe uh, over like 72 hours. <laughs> um, and uh, so I, I started using Linux and... Uh, then LaTeX for, for math homework and stuff like that. And really into programming, I think I got through really fixing problems, like having software that didn't quite work well for me and then going in and being like, oh, I, I think I can read this. I can try to understand and I can try to um, fix what is going wrong. And then in high school, we also have started having like proper programming classes. And um, I was very technology affine i would say and then university happened i started my undergrad and really that was when i started writing software more than i just like mucked about with software yeah what was your undergrad degree in oh i um i did uh, cognitive science so i focused on neuroinformatics uh, a little bit of robotics um, computer science and uh, philosophy of mind that's awesome <laughs> i love to hear that yeah, it's, it's a kind of, we, we sometimes joke that Julia was written mostly by scientists who needed better tools and by very few computer scientists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was your first programming language? Do you remember? Um, Bash? Yeah. <laughs> but no, uh, I think really like the first programming besides the, um, I, I would say Java. And then Scala. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So you did your bachelor's in uh, cognitive science. Is that what you said? Cognitive yes. science. Cognition. Cognition. And uh, now you're working on a PhD. And what's the topic for your, your PhD? Do you have one yet? Or how far along are you on, on all of that? <laughs> um, <laughs> how long until you finish? <laughs> how long till I finish? Um, <laughs> hopefully within the next year or two. Um, uh depending on how much uh, JuliaCon is going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But um, no, I'm, I'm doing my PhD in computer science now. Um, I uh, switched degrees twice, actually. Um, and uh, I'm now working on accelerated and distributed computing, okay. I would say. Um, and a little bit compiler design comes in, language design questions. Um, but primarily, I work on GPU accelerated computing. Um, and then the original topic I set out and want still want to solve is distributed computing in Julia, but uh, GPUs have uh, a little bit distracted me over the last years from that. And uh, I do, I help, a lot of my work is helping scientists use Julia better, um, or I listen to their complaints and then try to think about the ways we could make Julia better for them. Yeah. I was gonna say I just looked you up on Google Scholar, and you have quite a few preprints and publications out for not finishing it, not having finished your PhD yet. It's it's pretty impressive. These are all you. I think that I'm pretty sure these are you that I'm looking at. Yeah, I think. I mean, that's because it's a very collaborative effort, right? Um, and a lot of the work I have been doing is in collaboration with other people, and so. Um, depending on how much work I do, right, I end up on those papers as well. And uh, over the last two years, one of the most fruitful collaborations has been around um, this automatic differentiation tool enzyme um, that uh, William Moses, uh, a fellow PhD at MIT, kicked off. And uh, that now has been really one of the core focuses over the last few years, making that work well for Julia. So how much of your background in cognition do you get to use in your PhD. It sounds like, I mean, you know, trying to make Julia better for people, there's maybe some intersection there. Yeah, I, so there are different approaches to uh, programming language design, right? There is a, a very strong cadre around um, uh, formal design and that goes out of, uh, wants to formalize programming, wants to make uh, programming um, more stable, like Rust is one of these approaches where you would yeah. say, but by introducing a new concept, a new limitation, actually, right? It's often all about what limitations do we pose on programmers. Um, you give, you are, you're enabling the system to give guarantees to the programmer, and it makes it easier, or not easier necessarily, but safer, easier, um, to use that system to write programs. And so Rust, Haskell, um, all of these kinds of things. Um, I and I think Julia in general approaches approaches from a different perspective. For me, uh, programming language design is applied psychology. Mm -hmm. um, we want users to communicate with each other in the same language, and I think that's actually one of the more powerful concepts. Is when you see a very diverse engineering and science team coming together. You have the domain scientists who want to express their problem easily, or then you have performance engineers or HPC engineers who want to get the maximum performance out of the system. And classically, you end up these days with a sp split between the front end, the uh, science la level layer written in uh, Python, and then the performance layer, you know, one that does the whole, all of the hard work written in something like C and C++. Right. And um, for me, the power of Julia comes out of the, the ability to actually collaborate across the stack. 
being able to, yes, write very expressive high-level programs where the user doesn't need to worry about low-level system details, and then being able to take these programs and specialize them onto the particular hardware platform they're going to run on to extract performance. Yeah. And so that's where this applied psychology is coming from, because in some ways, programming languages are tools that we use to communicate with a computer, but code is read more often than it is written. Yeah. So it's also a way to communicate with other people and writing down code and writing down ideas in code um, is, right, Alan Edelman, my professor at MIT, often says, like, code is math, math is code, <laughs> because you can express the mathematical ideas in code very cleanly. Um, and same goes for more broader concepts, um, in my experience. Yeah, there's, there is this interesting aspect to programming where you're writing something for two very different audiences that both have to be able to interpret and understand it. And that's always been kind of a fascinating component of it to me. <laughs> Which also, I think, makes yes. it difficult. Like, that's one of the difficulties, right? It's, it's often that when you sit down and you write code and you just want to get the best performance, you might actually write code that is really hard to understand. And so for me, the big like philosophical or almost research question is, can we write easy and high-level code, easy to understand and high-level code, um, where the intention is clear, um, that still performs good yeah so this is a very mathematical concept by the way like just th this idea of of simplicity in 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 the code that's it's also intentional and, and and useful it reminds me of like posing a mathematical problem like no one pays attention to it unless it's simple to read and understand and also at the same time is meaningful <laughs> to the to the field so it's an interesting little notion, I guess. I think often in physics and mathematics, people strive for simplicity, right? There is this notion of elegance. And uh, I mean, the reality of the real world is problems are not elegant. Yeah. <laughs> Edge cases are, I think, very hard to handle correctly in most programming languages. Right? And this is always, right? There's, there's always tension here uh, between elegance and easy to read to high performance and actually does what it needs to do. And so um, there was the, this project um, where at some point the comment was, well, I see that Julia is fast, but only when you write it like Fortran. <laughs> and that was basically right, because he, the program that they translated from uh, to Julia was written in Fortran, and they showed, hey, it's as fast as the Fortran program. And everybody was like, great but it still looks like Fortran. Um, and so uh, a colleague and friend of me um, and I sat down for a couple of weeks and we like thought through the program and we're like, okay, so how can we rewind this so that we highlight the mathematical concepts at play here um, while you're not losing any performance? So what abstractions do we need to build and can we make those abstractions zero cost or near, near zero cost? Yeah. What was the outcome of that? experiment so there were two outcomes that i found amusing one of them was um that we make compile time much much worse <laughs> but runtime much better <laughs> uh, so we tax the compiler a lot in order to build these kinds of zero cost obstructions and then still make them work on the gpu 
And I think that's, in some ways, that's a second issue people can run into, that code is very, like, you can make code work very well on the, on the CPU and things are fine, but the GPU is a different environment and it has harsher restrictions. You can't use dynamic dispatch because we need to resolve all of the static calls. And so you must be much more rigorous in your abstraction design in order to enable it to also work on the GPU. Um, and so there was really that trade-off of, yeah, this is lovely, but now the compilation time, so I think we had like a runtime budget of 10 minutes that we set ourselves that was interesting. And it was like, I don't know, roughly like eight minutes of run uh, of compile time and two minutes of runtime, whereas the other one had one minute of compile time and nine minutes of runtime. <laughs> interesting. He just flipped it on its head. <laughs> and it's great because, right, if you if you just want more compute afterwards, it's all good. Uh, you get that much more faster. But um, And we didn't have the same level of caching at the t uh, that we now have uh, in the GPU stack, as an example. Um, the second outcome was that I no longer understood the code that people were writing with this abstraction because now they are writing fluid equations um, as a would on, be on a mathematical paper. And I was like, well, beforehand, I could see the memory operations and the arithmetic operations, but now I just see Greek symbols. So actually, it was, for me, less helpful. But for the mathematicians, it was like, oh, yeah, totally. I can see each of the equation terms as I would expect them. And I I dislike that. I'm a, I'm a mathematician. My PhD is in math. But like, there's something like... This is a good example of, of ideas that are hidden by the symbols, right? Like a lot of people without math backgrounds, they'll look at these equations and they, they get like nervous about looking at them. Yes. Like at least like from an educator's point of view, they look and really like the equation is like describing an idea, right? But all of the symbols that were chosen to be put in place were um, for like, they were needed for necessity to like simplify this long idea, but when writing code for that people are going to read, I would say I would prefer to not use those symbols, even though they're there and we can use them in Julia, for example. But like, I don't know, David, do you get what I'm saying? Or I just think it really depends. Like, I, I don't see an issue if, especially if like you're a single person or maybe a small group of people that are working on a, a a project and you're all kind of in the know with with everything then there's a significant maybe productivity boost you get from being able to just write things the way you would maybe write them on a, on a chalkboard or see them in the the papers that you're looking at or things like that yeah. um, but i think you know the wider the audience gets the, the more you have to kind of rein that in and i think that that two notions here one of them is actually the the notion of building an abstraction and making it useful and then the second layer is terseness, right? Math mathematical symbols give you a layer of terseness to, to express your ideas, and that can be beneficial or detrimental, depending on your audience. Um, but building abstractions to express concepts instead of ha everybody having to write down like the seven-layer for loops <laughs> uh, that would be necessary to do the operation every time they want to do it, right? That is very much like the core of um, for me, programming is to take a problem, break it down into constituents problems, um, encapsulate those in helpers and utilities, and then build abstractions based on them so that afterwards 
I can hide the complexity, right? We do the same complexity hiding that mathematicians do, but we call them libraries. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and we need to document those libraries well. And I think that's my biggest struggle with all the, with the math symbols is sometimes you have different traditions. Like, right, in science, one of the biggest problems is communication across fields because terminology is fluid. Terminology is field-specific. And so you need to be able to learn and understand what somebody means when they say, don't have a good example at the top of my head, but like, right. Um, it takes students years to take up all of the lingo in their specific domain. And then once you start using a lingo, you gain efficiency uh, because you can now express your uh, ideas much more tersely. But if you want to compare, uh, um, communicate with a layperson or an uh, expert in a different subject matter, you need to translate. And it's not just across fields or like disciplines. It can be within sub-disciplines of the same field. So, yeah. Yeah, one of the biggest things in philosophy is actually just like going back and making sure that everybody agrees with the definition of the terms you're using. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise, you're having a conversation, and you might think you're all in agreement, but two people you walked away with like two very different understandings of <laughs> of what just happened. Speaking of hiding complexity, uh, you were one of the volunteers for uh, JuliaCon. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure there was a lot of complexity that was hidden behind uh, all of that. It is really fascinating to think about. Uh, organizing and especially this kind of volunteer work. Right, the goals you set in the beginning can be quite high and lofty and all-encompassing. And then uh, people have limited amount of time. People um, have been volunteering for many years. Um, that uh, right, in in some ways, I think I've been organizing. I've been involved with organizing JuliaCon uh, now since 2017. Okay. And so seeing those changes and myself having to do uh, some changes. So the first two or three years of my organization, of being part of the organization team, I was program chair. And uh, I started to feel like that was too much work. I could not sustain that level of involvement um, while also doing all of the other things I wanted to do with my day. Um. And so I stepped back and um, I decided I wanted to focus on one problem and specifically that we hadn't solved before. Uh, and that was uh, proceedings. I wanted to be able to publish, to allow junior scientists to publish um, their work that they presented at JuliaCon as short papers um, and make sure that, those, uh, that they are actually deposited correctly so that, they are, um, that the academic credit works. Yeah, so I've been focusing on, I focused on proceedings um, for, uh, I think, three years. And then um, now this year I was uh, executive co-chair. Okay. So the other chair was uh, Avik, who has been involved with JuliaCon, I think, almost longer than I have. Um, and... I think the biggest challenge in this day and age is uh, digital versus in person. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, actually making that decision months in advance whether or not we're going to be in person or uh, remote 
is I think one of the most challenging aspects that we have had to do. And so right this year we were conservative and we said, no, we, we're going to do another year of virtual. And uh, next year, hopefully, if everything goes well, we will be in person again. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that, though, because, you know, well, I haven't I haven't going to any in-person conferences over the last couple of years, uh, but I know I've seen conferences that have, you know, planned to be in person. And then, you know, as soon as maybe even like a week ahead of, ahead of it, they're canceling it or, you know, moving it to all online or something like that. And that's got to be extremely frustrating from, well, for everyone involved, probably not just uh, the people that are going to attend. But I think, you know, making that decision early was good because, you know, maybe we could have had it in person, <clears throat> maybe not, but at least you know what to expect and, and everyone just gets to stay focused on that. Yeah, it's been interesting. So I think the f we, we've we been always trying to um, record all of the talks happening at JuliaCon. And uh, then a few years we tried to uh, make to make sure that we always live stream them as well. Live streaming talks is challenging, but um, um, and really requires a good AV team in the background. Um, and then, but it's always right. It's always interesting to see the engagement level, and you see so many people were in the room, but then on the live stream. Um, you had double, triple, quadruple the amount um, of interesting of people. So f for some ways, we, we did feel like going virtual would actually be a better engagement with that large portion of the community that couldn't attend in person. And I think, yeah, making conferences accessible is, is a real problem. I have a feeling, I have a feeling that the in-person JuliaCon, when it happens, there's going to be a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. We don't. We we currently don't have no idea how we are even gonna estimate how many people are gonna show up. Um, and of course that that is problematic because we need to size our um, space requests, etc., for for an estimate. Um, this is one of the reasons why we tend to go with academic institutions because they cost a lot less. Yeah. And that cost factor gives you flexibility, right? This is also one of the other problems um, that I think a lot of conferences were facing. Um, if you are a large conference and you book the conference venue, that's a huge cost that you are, find it will have a very hard time offsetting. Yeah, I don't know how you even estimate that. Um, just send a survey to everyone that signed up People don't fill out surveys. Yeah, I know. The engagement for that stuff is so <laughs> low, it's probably not even representative. That's tough. Yeah. Well, hopefully it'll be a good a good number. I could see, you know, there's a, a lot of excitement of like, oh, finally it's in in person again. But, uh, but then you're back to having the same sort of uh, accessibility issues that you get with having an in-person cover. Like not everyone can afford the the travel and the lodging it can be a lot of money right that's that's always something to keep in mind and uh we for previous in-person julia cons we always try to find some sponsor who would allow uh, diversity funding um so that we could fund students and uh, underrepresented uh, people to attend um 
the conference despite not having maybe the independent funding as somebody else might have. Um, and that does help, but it's only a small percentage. Sure. Engagement during the online conference worked kind of well. I, it's, it could be better, it could be worse. Uh, right, we, we had uh, a lot of people watching. We had less than that engaging and then even less than showing up to the social hours. And I think, I mean, the social hours, for me, one of the key aspects of JuliaCon is not necessarily all of the talks that have been produced, but uh, that's, of course, a key part. But for me personally, like the most interesting aspect uh, is um, the uh, the social interaction that randomly happen um, in uh, outside the talks in the hallways, right? The hallway track. As yeah, those is, are the best. <laughs> right, that that is the reason why we go to conferences. The reason why we give talks is so that somebody else pays for us going to conferences. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, and to have material to. To post on YouTube later. <laughs> I remember talking to uh, a few of the LVM developer meetings um, organizers, and they joked that they decided to make such a meeting because it is easier to convince an engineer to give a half an hour talk about uh, their work than have them write a page of documentation. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to the social hour, that was so that was the first time I'd ever done anything like that in an online conference. Uh, so I went to the online PyCon in 2020, I think, uh, or 2021, I can't remember which one. And they had something kind of similar to, you, you were using this uh, this gather town or gather um, service that uh, was was neat. It was like a, almost like a little video game or something. You can go in and, and walk around, you had a little avatar and there were things to do in there. But uh and the one at, at the PyCon conference was more like you were presented with what looked like tables and you could go sit at a table. You just click on like a chair and you, and you go and then you're in a, a video chat with the people at that table. Um, and, you know, in both cases, it was nice because it did kind of facilitate that um, random hallway track social interactions that you get at in-person conferences. Uh, but I think one of the challenges with it is that it's like you're now the conference is like distributed across a bunch of different platforms and it's not this like cohesive experience where you're just all there together um so that you know that's a, just a challenging thing yeah. to solve one of the best conferences i attended uh during um uh staying at home was um entirely hosted on gather time yeah okay so there were lit was literally a, a, a virtual room in which you would go and the talks would ha be happening on a screen in front of you. Uh, you can then maximize it, wash it at your leisure, but you would also be in like a five people, six people group. Um, and so if you had some friends around, uh, you could actually chat without disturbing anybody else while uh, everybody was having the same videos being clipped. Interesting. I think Discord in some ways works better for the asynchronous aspects. Yeah. And I think this will be something we will be trying to replicate um, is to take questions from the online audience. Um, and maybe right, normally you have like two microphones in the room. People go up to those microphones and ask questions. 
And instead of doing that, uh, I think we are planning on having a moderator uh, who takes questions on a similar platform like uh, this year and then interacts with a speaker, which takes away some of the like awkwardness of putting yourself into a room, asking your questions, um, and also facilitates the online interactions. You know, I've, I've been to conferences that, you know, do the Q&A after the talks, like the live Q&A, and some that, that just don't do the live Q&A. And it's like, no, just go meet that person after afterwards if you, if you want to talk to them. And uh, I got to say, in some ways, I appreciate the, you know, not having kind of the live Q&A, uh, like in the, at the in-person conference, uh, just because, well, you know, as a speaker, you're already stressed out as it is. And you're just, you know, you get done with your talk, you're probably like, just okay, and I just want to go like, you know, sit in the fetal position for like 15 minutes. And <laughs> until yes, all of, all of the adrenaline is rushing out, yeah. stress. Absolutely. And, you know, and then the other thing is, well, I guess they usually record the live Q&As if they do, if they're also like live streaming or they're recording, you know, they get recorded. So they are kind of there for posterity. But I like the idea of having this asynchronous Q&A um, where, you know, you can you can post your questions like during the talk. And then at some later point, you know, the author or the speaker can come back and, and answer that and have time to maybe, you know, actually formulate a good response and, and not something they have to sort of just pull off the top of their head. Yeah, I think that I haven't found a good tool to facilitate like the actual fully asynchronous experience. Um, I find tools that are like doing the online integration. All of that works kind of well. But um, yeah, I mean, that's um, I think um, the it's Interesting to look back and think about what's different about uh, a virtual conference. And there's actually a lot more infrastructure work necessary from the organizers. I bet. Yeah. Like in a, in a physical conference, yes, we need to organize the venue. We need to organize lanyards and sign in and volunteers for that. Uh, we need to hire an, an, uh, an AV camp uh, audio video production company um, to do the live streaming people have questions about travel all of those things are complicated but in the end people bring their laptop plug them in give their talk and that's it whereas for the virtual conference you need to like do a whole post pre-processing of all of the video uploads and um over the last two years that has worked sometimes decently sometimes not so good um this year, um, I made a mistake, and uh, some of the audio was way too quiet. And uh, some of those we caught early enough, but uh, we didn't actually have enough time to review every single video we uploaded. So um, we asked uh, the the uh, submitters to help. Like the the speakers themselves got an email, but uh, apparently fifty percent of that email ended up in a spam folder. <laughs> Right, and it's like all of that communication can go amiss. Um, people don't read their emails. Um, and so the response rate to that was kind of meh. One of the other things we've been trying to do for several years now and always been struggling with, and it's a lot of work, is uh, getting decent subtitles made before the video goes live. Um, 
this year we tried some auto transcription service and then uh, allowing the um, speakers to edit it and then upload it and but that is still more work than um right it, it's yeah. yeah there's no good way of doing it as far as i can tell and um the infrastructure to actually make the management of all of that information doable is one of the biggest bottlenecks like if i if i feel like i would do a startup <laughs> <laughs> that's the product i would sell and i feel like there are companies who are selling that product but it's always bad um or not as great as it could be or not as customizable as it needs to be yeah it's it's in fact i was just watching a, a video uh today for for work that was it was like a you know zoom video that uh, had been recorded earlier i needed to go check it out and i was watching it on the zoom platform and it had their you know their real-time transcription of it <laughs> it was absolutely <laughs> horrible and in some cases was uh even including like uh words that are, are not like like offensive words that were not what the yeah. what the speaker actually said but what it understood and it was including it and it was like holy cow like <laughs> so yeah i think there's a lot of work to be done on uh on all that and i I know that that's a, a struggle because, you know, we've been uploading videos to YouTube and that's still something we just haven't, haven't really sorted out for ourselves even is, you know, having good transcripts. We're just relying kind of on the YouTube service to do it for us. And it's really subpar. Um, and, and it's one of those situations where I'm not sure that having something is necessarily better than nothing. Yeah. We made the very, we had this pre-generated output and we decided for to use it as a starting point for the authors and it, i think it helped some yeah because they didn't need to write sit down and write everything down from scratch they had a blueprint to work off but we decided not to actually automatically add it to all of the youtube's videos because it was such poor quality and we rather make it clear that it's an auto-generated transcription from google than make it seem like it's something human created of really poor quality. Just while we're on the topic of, of, of subtitles though, I, one thing that was really interesting to me. So I, I went to this uh, conference a few years ago now um, called Pi Cascade, the Python conference uh, in, well, they kind of rotate around like Vancouver and Seattle. They had someone doing the subtitles in real time, like live at the in-person conference. They were sitting down at a table and they were just, you know, like a stenographer or something, like just typing away like really fast. And it was absolutely brilliant. Like, I mean, they obviously were extremely good at, at what they did, but uh, um, I, I'm sure services like that are, are costly. <laughs> so so there's, there's one conference uh, in Germany that I attend on a semi-regular ba basis, the Chaos Communication Congress. And they are completely volunteer-run. Um. They have, I, I, I think, the, I guess the attendee number is somewhere in the thousands to 10,000. Um, and they do all of the video production, all of the transcription, everything, uh, video translation, um, volunteer driven. Yeah. Um, uh, but they also have a community who delights in that, who is excited about doing that and... Uh, uh, and of course, there's some bonus uh, thing that's like a little bit gamified. Um, uh, 
but generally speaking, uh, they do live production um, with transcription and translation um, for most of the talks. So you can speak in English as a speaker. Uh, I think they don't do necessarily, they might do English to German and then German to English and French to English in German. That's normally, I think, what they what they offer. And it's in real time? Yes. They, That's think, amazing. I think the translation is in real time, at least. Um, the transcription is a, a post-hook effort, I think. And they have a website you can do, go to, and if you have a couple of hours to kill, you can just add transcription after transcription. <laughs> But they have a really complicated workflow, and I like actually looked at and was considering standing that up just for us. Uh, and but that's, that's also a cost trade off. It's just having to adopt technology that was not necessary. Right. Okay, now I need to have the same input data. How do I manage that? That's all complication. So this year we used a hacked together um, system based on. Uh, Julia scripts, downloading and uploading information to web services, um, some um, global master table you know, uh, on the web with, uh, hosted by Airtable, and then basically some scripts that like get the information, put it up to YouTube, put it there, do this, do that. Um, and yeah. <laughs> uh, doing the video processing on the Julia uh, continuous integration systems. <laughs> so somebody uploaded a video, somebody then used uh, put that link into the table, and then that automatically kicked off a build job that would download that video, um, add our little pre-roll, do some video processing, and then upload that to YouTube uh, and the transcription service, and uh, so forth. That's cool. I mean, at least there was some, you know, automation going on there behind the scenes. Yeah. And then the year before that, uh, there was a lot of that was done manually. Yeah. Which is probably why it was automated this year. <laughs> We're like, okay, let's not do that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a lazy person. That's why I'm a programmer. And so if I can automate something, I will automate it. So I'm curious what some of your big takeaways were from this year's JuliaCon, just, um, and I guess you can interpret that broadly, you know, from like an organizer's perspective or just from, uh, I, I assume you didn't have a whole lot of time to really watch a lot of the talks, like as the conference was taking place. But um, uh, my, my dirty secret is that I haven't watched a JuliaCon talk <laughs> voluntarily without having to quality control or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All of that doesn't count. Um, I think there were maybe two talks that i managed to watch this year um and then last year it's like i try to find when i'm when i'm flying i w download some youtube uh JuliaCon talks and watch some <laughs> months later um but i think the biggest takeaway or like the biggest challenge is how do we go behind our current audience so if you looked at the um, watch numbers, et cetera, um, participation numbers, um, they were all kind of similar to last year, even maybe even a little bit less. 
And that's not necessarily problematic, right? You don't need to have year-over-year -year growth that is uh, in the end percent, but it is for me indicative to the fact that we have a core audience that attends the conference and um, we might not be doing as good of a job um, advertising and uh, attracting new people. And that goes from like also like speaker pool. Speaking of the speaker pool, uh, I forget who it was that I think it was Miguel uh, Raz that uh, showed me like the chart he made of like when all the actual submissions came in, you know, and it's like everyone's like day of you know, that is due or maybe even like a, a day or two after the, the due date of getting all that uh, all that in. I, I would venture to guess that that's not, you know, specific to the Julia community. That's probably a typical <laughs> thing across conferences. It, it is a typical thing. I think it's actually more common for academic conferences to be like that. <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, we, 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 are, we have multiple challenges, right? One challenge is we, we are running out of space. We do not have um, enough slots for, for how many submissions we are getting. Um, I remember one conference year where we, where we did not do a submission extension. We closed the submission on time. And I got inundated with emails asking me to reopen the submissions because how could it possibly be that there is no extension? <laughs> so we've only been reminding you for months. So like... <laughs> I've been reminding you for months and we had like 240, 300 submissions. It's like we, we had enough. We, oh, okay. Yeah. Um, we, we were not, we were not staffed. We didn't have the feeling that we needed to like extend it. Um, and then we extended it and we doubled. Yeah. And so reviewing is really hard, choosing um, the talks that we can support. Um, the, you, you see, we will see that a lot of the talks we accept are lightning talks. Some of them were not uh, submitted as lightning talks, they were submitted as full talks. And basically in order to make enough space in the program for everybody to present or for as much as many people as possible and to highlight and show the diversity of the Julia community. That's my goal, right? Um, is we, we, need to, we need to go back to people and say, sorry, I think your topic is great, your talk could be great, but can, do you think you can do this in a 10 minute slot? Um, or we go back to people and say, hey, would love to have you, but the only thing we can offer you at this time is a poster. Right, things that are better multiplexed. Um, and I think posters in an online uh, realm are always problematic, but at least they turn into like a three minute uh, YouTube video that somebody can watch. Right, yeah. I mean, we don't have many options. Uh, we can make the conference longer, but making a conference longer is gonna make it more expensive, harder to attend for other people. Um, we can make more tracks. More tracks will dilute the attention that uh, exists and increases the likelihood that somebody will speak in front of an empty room. Yeah, which I have seen happen at conferences. So. And so in-person conference scheduling for me is a lot about making sure that talks that I know will have an outside interest, like the State of Julia talk every year has the highest attendance quota. 
uh, we will put those into a single track because nobody uh, needs to compete against that. It's just interesting to think that, you know, humans have been congregating in these kinds of large meetings like this to share information and, and research for a really long time. And yet there's still so many challenges and difficulties with that, that, um, that it just, it's a, it seems like it's just a really difficult problem. <laughs> I, I, I think it's like the problem of, there is no ideal solution, right? And so the only thing you can do is trade-offs. Yeah, exactly. And that's a common trade in many design problems. Um, like if you want to choose um, your garbage collection algorithm, well, you're going to choose that depending on uh, the problems you see people using um, your language for. And that trade-off might not be the right one for a different group of people. Well, despite all the challenges, I still think that you and the, the rest of the organization team pulled off another great conference. And uh, there were a lot of really cool talks uh, this year, as there are every year. But, uh, you know, this is the first time I actually got to attend and like actually in the past, it's always just been watching the YouTube videos. And this, I had one day where I could yeah. actually come and I actually, you know, got to watch some stuff in real time and interact and discord and all that. Uh, and it was a lot of fun. Um, so I thought I, 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 you're welcome to take a, a pass on this Valentine, but um, I thought we, if, if you want to, but I thought we'd just maybe in the last, you know, few minutes here, uh, just mention, kind of go around and say what our favorite, uh, maybe not our favorite, but one, one of the talks that really stood out to us that we enjoyed from the from the conference this year. So I'm happy to to start. So hopefully I don't take yours, Randy. But um, uh, one that that I really enjoyed. There's some things I'm really looking forward to. Uh, was the uh, the updates on the VS Code extension? Ah, that's the uh, one. <laughs> is that the one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really I really like what they've got. You know, coming you know, planned and everything. And, and just to kind of quickly highlight, uh, and we'll link to the, you know, the video for this and everything, uh, so that people can go in and check it out. But, uh, the one thing, two things that stood out to me that I thought were really cool. Uh, one is, uh, the, they now support, uh, execution of Julia code blocks in just regular markdown documents. So if you, you know, have a little, and then maybe they've supported that for a while, but it was all announced in this. Uh, this talk of, of things they've done. And then one thing that's upcoming that looks really nice is this new test runner uh, that they are, are working on uh, where you get more granular granular control over running tests. You can run your entire suite and then you can go back and just run, you know, the ones that failed, uh, rerun them once you've, you know, put some little patch or something in there. So, um, and I, I know they said that it's still uh, brittle right now and that it'll probably be several months before that's available, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. I think my one of the ones that are my favorite uh, is also a David Antoff video, um, the Julia Op um, installer and ma a Julia version manager. And I've like been aware that it existed, but that was really what like kicked me in the butt. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna try this on my day-to-day -day development system, and it's been really nice. Um, so Julia Op uh, allows you to choose and select which Julia version you are going to run. Um, and it automatically downloads and installs it. And uh, on Linux, which uh, we've been having this problem over the many years that 
uh, distributions uh, like to muck with our build scripts uh, and then break things and then get confused when people complain about those things being broken. Um, so Julia app just uses the binaries we put our a lot of en uh, energy into building correctly, um, and um, and you can also add uh, development versions and um, other uh, like random tags. I can have me be like, okay, this is a feature I'm trying out, and I can easily switch between which um, uh, version of Julia I'm I'm going to run. Um, the other one. I think, I mean, for me, it is very exciting to see is just the um, amount of talks uh, that came out of the Julia Lab and were presented. Um, it's like I looked at it and was like, oh, yeah, right. We had seven. We had a, we have a lot of master students and uh, undergrad researchers uh, who then uh, presented their work at JuliaCon. Um, and the other thing I, I uh, would like to highlight were all of the mini symposia. And uh, we talked a little bit about like challenges earlier and mini symposia is really a way for me uh, how I think we would solve some of those challenges, especially the space constraint. Giving people space to organize their own mini conference within JuliaCon. Miguel's REPL workshop. Yeah, if I, if I had to pick another one, that would be my second favorite. Definitely a good one. Yeah, I wanted to make sure we mentioned that too. Uh, Miguel was a, a, a previous guest on the uh on the um here on the podcast he was our very first guest actually the first time we ever had a guest uh or no sorry that was logan yeah it was logan and then then we had miguel come and uh, also talk a little bit about the rebel and then i know he did like a uh like a course or you know um seminar series at uh unam in mexico and then turned that into this uh julia rebel mastery workshop so definitely worth worth checking out yeah both of them both logan and miguel have been involved with organizing JuliaCon over the last few years been doing a tremendous amount of work yeah, and i know miguel's done a lot of work in just uh you know getting um spanish-speaking folks involved in in uh, julia and JuliaCon and all that and uh so that's that's good to see uh, bring in some more of the diversity and and um you know get that uh, other other language speakers you know feel represented and uh and comfortable at the kind of the main julia conference this was one of the things we were like we probably the last virtual conference so we're gonna give this a go and we intentionally opened up a call for non-english talks and workshops and so one of the workshops as an example was in hebrew uh, awesome um, it was a, a repeat of last year's julia statistics workshop um but this year it was in hebrew and so that kind of uh, language diversity, I think, is really important. It's you can do it in in uh, in an online format much easier than you can do it in person. Well, I think um, you know we've been talking for about uh, almost an hour now, so I think uh, we can we can call it a day and, and wrap this up. We're forgetting the question, though. Do you want to you want to ask them, Brandy? So there's two questions that we like to ask. So first. Um, what is your favorite Julia package? And then second, um, what's your favorite IDE? What's your IDE of choice to, to work in? Everyone makes the exact same face you just made though. Whenever we ask, what's your favorite Julia package? They're always, oh. <laughs> uh, okay, so the, the second question is actually easy to answer. Um, I use primarily Visual Studio Code. 
um, with the Wim bindings, and then I use Wim. Um, but I don't. I I'm not a Wim plugin fanatic. Um, so the only thing I have is I think a syntax and lighting, and um, it's my go-to editor for remote systems. And when I need it in a pinch, and I'm used to it so much that the key bindings make sense. Uh, and so in VS Code, the editor for me is still Wim, but all of the extra features um, are really nice to have. And um, yeah. Um, I think I really switched to Visual Studio Code when their remote editing features became so robust. Uh, it's been really, really great and uh, um, makes things a lot easier. What's my favorite Julia package? Oh, boy. <laughs> can I give a ranking? Or can I give a set of five without any ordering? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, benchmark tools. Um Cthulhu, which is kind of problematic because it's my own package. LVM.geo <laughs> um, um, slash GPUcompiler.geo. What do I do? JSON3 by Jacob. It's been really nice to work with, and it makes me forget that I need to deal with annoying JSON. Um, what? Oh, and Maki. Do you ever use Revise? I, I mean, uh, Revise for me is not a package. It's it's a lifestyle. Right, so. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's one of those funny things. Like, it would almost be natural for us to make Revise um, a standard library. But uh, standard libraries are where code goes to die. Yeah, yeah, exactly. People, right, the maintenance, <laughs> I mean, sometimes maintenance also doesn't pick up once we move the code out. Uh, but maintenance on standard library code is a lot lower than, or like the rate of change, which is good, right? In some ways, the stability of a standard library is great, uh, but we also see much less feature development because people would like to use the feature immediately, not wait six months for Julia release to come out. And so hopefully, eventually, we'll get to the point where we can swap out like we where we don't need to have a standard library baked into the system image um and we can actually swap out implementations uh, or update um standard libraries alongside normal packages and then standard libraries are only packages that are somewhat maintained by this nebulous cloud that is the julia contributors um but doesn't have any other specialty uh with them well valentine Thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and chatting with us. Uh, it was a pleasure. Absolutely appreciate it. And uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you around and hopefully catching you in person at, at the next in-person JuliaCon. And then also we should uh, just have another interview at some point after you finish your PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I will hold you to that. Thank you. Thank you for having me and uh, have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.